G'day boys and girls, welcome to episode 37 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. We're nearly at the end of season 2, B. We're um, coming to the end of it, I can't believe we've flown through it that fast, but yet here we are. It's madness, isn't it? Episode 37, that is crazy. When we started to press record and see if people would be interested in what we had to say, we had no idea we'd get to 37. We had no idea we'd get to 7, let alone 37. That's right, we didn't. But I think now we're pretty much aware that we will not run out of content, at least not for a, a long time yet, eh? No, absolutely not. There's no no doubt about that. We've got plenty to talk about and we're really not even that far into our journeys. We're, we're a reasonable way into our great big AOG journeys, but there is plenty more to come after that, that's for sure. Did you want to tell folks about some of our, well, actually, let's put it another way. So, B, do you want to do the announcements? I'm happy to do the announcements. I, I do feel like I'm back at church and that just triggered me a little bit, but I will do the announcements. Well, you finish the announcements and I'll do the prayer requests. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea, but only for those who have paid up front. Yeah, that's right. Only for those that have tithed. Otherwise, we're not interested. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And neither is God. Oops. Facebook people. Facebook is growing. The group is definitely kicking along. We've got plenty of people there. We're, we're edging up. You know, we're getting several people a week jumping into that. Yeah, the occasional person jumping out, and that's okay. We're closer to 300 members than we are to 200 now. We are, yeah. It's it's definitely been great. And there's some new people who've have been in there, have noticed, you know, maybe just sitting up the back being pew warmers and now are jumping in and actually having a, a bit of a go at the conversation. It's been great to see that. Been great to see people just have a crack and know that it's a non judgmental space. So Keep doing that, keep jumping in, and also feel free to uh, direct message T and I, more than, more than happy. It's mostly Aussies, but there are quite a few people from like the UK, Canada, the US, etc. Yeah, there are. There's, there's quite a few people from the US, so it's good to see. Also, Twitter, our Twitter account definitely sees a fair bit of traffic. T drives that. Uh, we've got quite a few followers on that. We've got a few things that we announce on that. And I mean, they get put out on Facebook too, but you know, Twitter, it's better for the people with attention spans like me. It's quick, short, sharp. So get on there. And also, if you are able, Patreon, or Patreon, I've, I've been actually, a mate contacted me. And he said, I'm sick of you guys saying Patreon. It's Patreon, as in pay. And he said, if you say Patreon and correct yourself, I'll give you $50. So this is a little bit like a, an appeal. Cough up, buddy, 50 bucks. Send it on. I'm, a, I'm, afra I'm afraid to, to say Patreon now. If I have to say Patreon, it'll cost us 50 bucks. But after he's paid, let me know, and I'll go back to saying it the way that I fucking want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Always the rebel. Look, for 50 bucks, I'm happy to go. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon. Now you owe us 200. Now you owe us 200. <laughs> exactly. You know who you are? Paul. I know Paul. Paul, you do know Paul. I do you, know Paul. Yeah. But not, not Paul Yongi Cho. I no, just, I just no. want to put that up front because he can't he, hear it. He was, he was in your suburban. Independent Pentecostal one, wasn't he, Paul? He was, he mm. was, and um, Paul and I are still good mates. So another one that I go back many, many years. So anyway, Paul, cough up. So hey, today's episode is one of those episodes where we talk about our stories, 
and you know where where we cross paths where we didn't the things that we went through etc and and let's face it a lot of these seem to be largely about me and my my journey um and that's not because um i'm more of a narcissist than you although that may be true it's more i think because i got sort of more into that level of leadership and yeah so definitely going to talk about that but i do want to really draw you into this one because you were present in this time and there was some and you and I even bumped heads a little bit at, at this point, I think. Oh, we did. I, I saw you through different eyes during this time. So this is an interesting episode to reflect on because I was more like the asshole in this one. So I was very protective of the space. But anyway, we'll get into it and definitely pick that apart a little bit. Yeah, cool. So you remember before uh, C's episode last time, we talked about me getting fucked at Country Town AOG and, and all that sort of story and how I came back to Great Big AOG and I was still smarting, still hurting from the stuff that had happened to me at um, Country Town AOG. But I'd made the decision out of some, some advice from my future in-laws and advice from other people that were working in the state executive office and stuff to just keep my mouth shut keep my head down and let God vindicate me and let it all sort of, you know, play out that way. And in retrospect, I think that was a huge mistake, to be mm. honest. Although in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really matter, right? But at, at the time, at least, it, it turned out to be a huge mistake because what I did was I bit my tongue. I decided I wasn't going to say what I'd seen, what I'd heard, all the bad things that had gone on. I was just going to come back to great big AOG with a smile in my face and a, you know, bounce in my step and just reconnect with everything and life was going to go on. But as I said, the senior pastor of Country Town AOG had made it for whatever reason, his business to share his version of events with everybody that he perceived mattered. When I got back, I sort of found myself hitting these brick walls at Great Big AOG. I remember the the youth pastor there who had always been the sort of the senior youth pastor said to me, come back, don't get involved in any sort of ministry or anything for a little while, just be in the audience and just, you know, settle in. And so I, I, I took his advice. I mean, there was never any time limit. It was never like, you know, three months, one month, you know, whatever. I didn't realize I was probably being kicked out in, in a sense, you know, I was being disciplined. And, and I didn't see that because I didn't think that I'd done anything wrong. And I can tell you now, even looking back, you know, 30, 25 years later, I hadn't done anything wrong. Matter of fact, I feel like I'd kept my integrity and very much so. So anyway, I came back and I decided to to sit in the in the pews. But meanwhile, Pastor is walking around and telling everybody how bad I was and pretty much making shit up, I would imagine. But, you know, who's to know what happened in those conversations or at least putting a spin on things. And so, as you said, I came back and I was a bit on the nose. So, but, but I wasn't aware of this. And so people were obviously talking and it had filtered down to different levels that somehow I had, um, I had failed or whatever. But, you know, B, when I was reflecting back on this on that episode, and and it really rocked me to record that. It really took me quite a, quite a while to sort of settle again in my in my spirit, rather. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really struck me was, what did I do that was wrong? In their eyes, I had left, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, 
if you're not the right fit for a job or a job is not the right fit for you, you quit. You know, you don't have to burn bridges. You don't have to make trouble. You just say, hey, this isn't working for me. This isn't right for me. And you walk away. And that was really, if you want to look at the sin, that was the sin. I just basically left. And I really think that that shows the cultishness of at least the situation that I was in at Country Town AOG because I couldn't just leave. I couldn't just say, this isn't for me, you know. And they were like, oh, no, no, you have to stay until we say you can go, until we release you. And so I was a year in a job that I really wasn't enjoying. It wasn't the right fit for me. I, I said, you know, it wasn't anyone's necessarily anyone's fault in some ways because, you know, I was this middle-class private school boy all of a sudden thrown into this country town, you know, of sort of working class. And, you know, it was it was a rough fit for me, you know. And I was thinking the fact that they decided you can't leave, even though they weren't paying me, I wasn't drawing a wage from from the church. You know, there was there was nothing. But do, you know, do you know what I'm saying, B? Doesn't that speak to the the toxicity of it that you you know you can't make your own decisions? Oh, hundred percent. I think what a lot of it was about, though, is you were seen to not conform, and whether that that was probably a very broad spectrum too of not staying. You're not conforming with the expectations of the leadership there, but also by coming back to Great Big AOG, you weren't conforming with what they wanted you to do. It, it was all about the control factor from, oh, from totally. my perspective. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was part of that. I was drawn into that. I was very, very much about protecting the Great Big AOG space. You know, I was very embedded within middle management by then, um, in middle leadership within that uh, youth crew. And it was almost... I don't know, when I look back on it, it was almost like it was a time of professionalising that youth group. It was very much taking it to that next level. It was going through a bit of a, a growth strategy, I think. As you probably remember, there was several groups split off within the larger group to cater for all the different age groups and requirements. Yeah, they sort of categorised it, didn't they? They had a younger youth, a middle youth and an older youth kind of thing. Yeah, they did. And, and I think it was, you know, some of that I think was about making sure that it was fit for purpose, each of those groups. But I think the the larger aspect of it was it was going through. I mean, there was a, a time around then where there was quite a few people I think were, were restless. This was probably just pre-Toronto. Yeah, it was. It was a year or so away from Toronto, I think. It was, but there were a year or so at hitting Australian shores for sure. And um, But, you know, you'd hear whispers of it. You'd hear whispers of what was happening. And I remember when that first happened, there was whispers of, oh, there's weird shit happening over there. And it wasn't really taken on on as something that was legitimate until it got legitimised through, as we've spoken about before, it coming through the the AOG ranks and it all of a sudden was a, a the real deal. Yeah, and, th- and that came later on and that certainly catapulted us in sort of different directions. But, but where we were, say, about a year before, you, you'd become like a middle leader in one of those youth groups or something, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think for me, some of it was because just being a Bible college, you know, it was very tightly tied to, I think oh, it was a long time ago. Now we had the Let's Go to Bible College episode, but it was tied very strongly to that church, but it was also 
it had some anchors in the Anglican space as well. Some of the study units were through the Australian College of Theology, which was more Anglican based. So, And Sydney Anglicanism, going back to that sort of Josie McSkimming episode, it was that, you know, very strong biblical text-based fundamentalism. Yeah, very much so. But even at that time, we saw it as, oh, it's Anglicans. It's probably a lot more liberal, small L liberal. So it it's, was a, a bit of a weird time. So I'd become very invested in that space. I'd become very protective of this church and the fold within the, the youth group. Yeah, because you were, you were charged with caring for some of these people in a sense, weren't you? You know, I mean, that was that was your role. It was it wasn't you weren't a pastor, but you were in a pastoral style role. You were expected to be a leader of the youth. And I think one thing that we need to stress is there'd been a big change in the leadership of the youth. The youth pastor, the the guy who had been a youth pastor for a very long time, he became an assistant pastor and stepped up and he moved out. And then the guy that had been in charge of the younger youth went to Country Town AOG. And then there was another guy who was like this sort of third wheel guy. He actually stepped up into taking care of the home groups and that kind of stuff. So he was gone as well. And so all of a sudden there was these positions available to the youth. And one went to the guy who I'd said sort of, you know, wasn't very nice to me and had gone to Bible college, come from another town. He'd been sort of groomed. He was a pastor's kid and he was very much, knew how to play the game. He'd been raised playing the game. And another one was a woman who had come from a couple of years before. And she was really also very good at playing the game. But I don't say that to diss her in any way. I mean, she just was naturally very good at playing it, but she was also a real workhorse. She would just do everything and anything to to sort of please the leaders or to, you know, what she believed to be the right thing to do for the youth group. I, I really want to make sure that I, I'm painting her in a good light because she was a, a good-hearted woman. And so she was given one of the groups and he was given one of the groups. And then I was off in country town AOG. So what happened with you in that time when all that sort of came about? How did you end up as a leader? Tell us all about it. Look, I can't remember all the details, but I do remember throwing myself in quite quite committed in that space. And the female leader who you spoke about, I considered her a friend and there was definitely an alignment with me, with her, and I can't remember whether I was asked to formally come on leadership or it just continued because I'd already been a, a leader in this youth group in its former iteration. But it was it was an interesting time. And for me, um, I didn't have an issue with the fact that here we go, we have got a female senior leader because you got to remember this church at that time had no women on staff. I don't think historically they'd ever had one either. No, no, absolutely not. They were always seen as supporting their husbands, supporting the the male that was there. So, you know, this is uh, 93, 94, somewhere around there. So we're, we're talking not that long ago in the scheme of things, but in terms of church, I mean, that it was a very male-dominated area. I didn't, I didn't have that lens, but I know that others did. Seeing a female in that position and also having that traditional mindset of it's a male that leads this place. You know, you're talking about males ahead of the household. Males make the decisions about lots of other things. Women have got to be good, submissive servants to their husbands. That was definitely the flavour of that space. And to then have a female come in and lead and be on paid staff as a, a youth pastor, 
I think it was a fairly big thing for some people. So maybe as a result of that, she wasn't given a fair go and probably saw a little bit more, I don't know, pushback. Resistance. resistance. Yeah, resistance. Is the word you're looking for. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So there's no doubt that that happened. I don't remember details of that or I just remember the vibe, the the feeling of that time was very much around that. Um, I was very supportive of her though. Some of the suburban AOGs around us, there were women pastors. And even at Bible college, there were women pastors that would come along and be a part of it. But still, largely the AOG was a, a male-run patriarchal, yada, yada. It was that kind of show. But our church especially so. And I can remember when she got the leadership position, even myself, who out in the in the real world, in inverted commas, um, I would certainly have no problem with women leaders, etc. It was quite a shock to me too. You know, even someone that was from, you know, originally from the outside and I had been sort of indoctrinated or conditioned that it was it was definitely a challenge. But I think what happened for her was she felt that so strongly, right? She felt that pushback about her being a woman, etc. And there had been such a holding back of women that she reacted or responded in a way that would be considered some sort of affirmative action even. She brought a lot of her female friends into the leadership very, very quickly. And she had a feeling of, there was just this feminization, but I don't mean feminization is in feminism. I mean, feminization is in bringing a lot of the women into the group. And so the dynamic changed very quickly, maybe too fast. I'm not saying it shouldn't have changed. I'm not saying it couldn't have changed, but I'm just talking about in terms of change management, which I do in my job now, even when you're going in the right direction, you need to lead people slowly through that change, you know, and give them time to adapt, et cetera. She did it very, very quickly. And maybe that was part of the pushback that she experienced or a reaction to the pushback that she experienced. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. And uh, I think at that time, I mean, you've got to remember this person was more than qualified. She had been a Bible college. She had a theology degree. She was definitely positioned well in terms of, you know, that professional ministry position next. But I think at the core of it, she was a woman. And, and it was a really patriarchal construct within this place. And to challenge that, Definitely, if you were looking at change management theory, you, you definitely edge away and do it slower. But I think I can see how frustrated a woman would have been in that space. And once you get that position, you'd want to capitalise on it and actually go, you know what, guys, this isn't just a men's space. Let's let's be honest. There's probably more women in this church than there is men, or certainly at least an equal number. Let's try and equal this up. And that wouldn't have been seen favourably. And she had no role models. Right, no. she had no nobody there to say, "Here's how it's done." If you're a woman, right? She was she was brand new, and she was very young. She was only in her twenties. We're not talking about a thirty-something or even a forty-something-year-old woman in there. We're talking about a a woman in her twenties with no role models on site. Certainly, she would have had relationships with people outside, no doubt. But she was really up against a lot of stuff, and so it's not surprising at all that. It failed. I don't want to say she failed because she did her best, but the the situation didn't work out to her to her benefit. Yeah, well, that's it. You look at it, her role, her role models were definitely pastors' wives who were submissive. 
So that, I don't think they would have even seen kindly. I mean, the conversations that I had before I married my then wife were very much around how is she to serve the vision of, of you know, of the male pastor type thing because that's what had been passed down. That's what had been part of advice I'd been given, certainly by pastor's wives, was that their job was to sit there and support. Yeah. Let's call her N. Let's give her a name. All right. So let's call her N moving forward rather than she, as my mother used to always say, she's the cat's mother, which I never understood because she is, everybody's mother is a she, but anyway, moving on. Yeah. So I used to come back and visit occasionally. I was still in uh, country town AOG and I used to pop back and visit. You know, we'd have a Saturday night off or something and I would come up because remember my then girlfriend was still based at Great Big AOG and we were traveling backwards and forwards to see each other. And plus you guys are all still my friends and I still loved you all dearly. And so I would come up and visit. And at first, when I got there, the first few times it was, yeah, it was, you know, business as usual. But when I started coming back a little bit later on, or even after I I left country town and came back to Great Big AOG, when I got there, the dynamic had changed. The feeling had changed. There was definitely trouble brewing underneath and I can remember getting in there once and walking in to the to the service and I thought I was just going to you know reconnect with the youth group um, I wasn't expecting that I was going to become one of the pastors or anything like that but I think I was perceived perhaps by some of these leaders as a bit of a threat like oh hold on he's he's been a youth pastor and now he's coming back where does he fit where does he slot in? Does he think he's going to take over? Does he, does he think he's going to be the boss? And, and I certainly didn't. But I also didn't think that I was going to be completely shunted into a sort of back corner and be sort of sat up the back and not allowed to have a say or anything at all. So I think there was a bit of an overcompensation coming from the leaders as well about, oh, we don't want him to think he's the boss. So let's make sure that he realizes he's fucking not. And so I got sort of squashed down, and that was really hard to take. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. You were going through a, a lot of shit yourself and to come back into that space that it was a weird time. Like I remember that time. It was a very transitional time. I look back on it now and think just how strange it was. And, I mean, it was almost like there was a strategic plan that had been developed and it was being executed. And those who didn't follow the strategic plan were definitely on the outer. Um, it wasn't that sophisticated, obviously, but that's how I reflect on it. But at the time, I was sold. I was sold into it. I was, let's protect this space. Let's make sure that whoever's involved, we've got complete control of. Let's make sure that we look after the fold and if anyone tries to come into that space, then, you know, it was almost like attack dogs. Mm. I can remember coming along to the um, to the youth group that you were a part of, that middle group, and there was um, this desire to, okay, we are new, we have a new leader, let's do things differently. I remember coming in and seeing one night, it was like, oh, hi, welcome. We have an all-male choir tonight. Does anyone want to, you know, enjoy our all-male choir? And there was this group of guys standing behind a group of women who were leading the meeting and they were just singing. And I was like, okay, so as much as it's not good that all men run the show, I don't know that it should be good that all women should run the show. Maybe it should be this sort of mix, you know. So that was the first thing that struck me. And maybe that was just a perception. Maybe that wasn't the way it was happening. But the other thing I remember was like, and over here are our clappers. 
And so they had some people off to the side who were just clapping during the choruses. That was their job. And I think this was an attempt to try and make it more, you know, not just the leaders, but everybody sort of involved. But it just seemed so fucking trite. And it just seemed like, I remember saying to a friend of mine, all they're doing is moving the furniture around in the same building. It's not really any sort of systemic change. There's not, and I wouldn't have used that sort of language then, let's be real. But, you know, I, I didn't sense that the the attempt to, to make the changes were anything sort of fundamental. It was just, oh, we're just going to move the couch around here. We're going to put the, you know, the divan over there. And this is a brand new place. And actually it's not. And I can remember thinking that. And I think that's when I came to you and said, what's going on? What's going on with the youth group? And I remember I came to your house. Yeah. You you weren't happy to hear from me, if I recall correctly. No, I wouldn't have been. And just to sort of bounce back before I uh, respond to that is I think the reason the furniture just gets moved around is the response is formulaic. There's particular things that work in the setting, so why change them? But if you just shift them around, it looks a bit different. And and I think that was always the response within Great Big AOG or within the youth group is there is a particular formula, let's stick to it, and if you mix things up, you'll feel like you're being revolutionary in a way. So people probably thought they were actually being quite progressive in their... In, the, in their clapping. Yeah, well, I was trying to find a word for it, but yeah, I don't actually remember the clappers, but that is... Oh, the is... clappers, yeah, I remember the clappers stood out to me. It was like, fuck, fucking clappers. But you know, I was so sold on the place at the time that, that I think that I would have just... Um, I would have just accepted the clappers. Not possibly could have even been a clapper. I have no idea. I think um, you might have been. I think you might have been a clapper. Yeah, that's gee, that's really sad. That's probably why I blocked it out. It's traumatic. The mind is protecting me. Clapper in a vest. <laughs> I love a vest. Now, look, I want to make sure you understand that I'm, we're talking about then, and I did shit that was really bad. So when I'm telling you about my perception of, of those days and talking about you and what I saw, et cetera, please don't think that I'm saying you were wrong and I was right. We were both wrong and we were both right. But I just want to stress that's the way I saw it then. No, no, no. I'm... So don't hang up and walk away from the podcast. <laughs> I'm about to. No, no. Look, I, I own this. I mean, it was a really weird time. And, you know, fast forwarding, which we'll talk about in another episode or two, it was really for me, I was on the precipice of leaving. So I think for me, this was a a last-ditch effort, and it certainly wasn't consciously to throw myself into the space. Oh, yeah. It's like uh, spraying a blowfly. They they go absolutely crazy just before they die, and so too with emotions. When you try and cut emotions and thought patterns, they exert themselves strongly before they, the ex, you know, what do they call it? Emotion extinction. Um, it's the same kind of thing, so I totally get it. Yeah, no, no, and I, I was definitely in that space. But I think also for me, I was seeing it as, hey, Bible college, what's the next step for me? You know, I've always said I wanted to be a, a career Christian, you know, so it was moving into ministry. There was opportunity. I've got to impress. I've got to make sure that to a certain degree I toe the line. And I was more than happy just to go along with it and support it. And as and, I said. And iron your vest. That's that's right. Collection of vests, thank you. I didn't just have one. And as I've, I've, as I've said previously, I'm pretty sure that for my 21st birthday, you and a few other people bought me one of those vests. So you started my vest journey. So fuck you and yeah, your yeah. vest trashing. I, I consider myself fucked. <laughs> you know, I fully supported this uh, in, in her leadership and really wanted to be part of it and saw it as a, a good thing. So I became quite protective of it. There, I've just, I've 
put my stamp on it. So when you came to my house, carried on and tried to challenge it, I would have, oh, look, I would have seen it as an attack, an attack on me, attack what was happening. Here's this guy, he's just, he's gone away, he's, he's been in ministry for... He's failed. No, no, I, I'm not sure I would have seen it as failure. I, I don't know what, I, I can't actually remember what I saw it as. I remember when you came back and I remember thinking, what has happened, but I never really, you and I were still mates, I wasn't having a dig at you, but I, I certainly became protective and thinking, what's he up to? Yeah, I think one of my friends who was uh, an assistant pastor at a suburban AOG, he had been in Great Big AOG, he actually tried to woo me and caught me over to his suburban AOG after that because he knew that I hadn't done anything wrong, you know, and he knew all that. But I think he was also aware that there was no going back to Great Big AOG, but I didn't know that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think he knew this is actually the better step for you now, mate. You need to come out into the larger AOG and, and get out of there. I thought I could just go back and plug back in, but obviously not. No, things had definitely changed. There was definitely a shift at that time. And as I said, it was, you know, a shift that sort of nudged me to go further away eventually. But I'm not even entirely sure what that shift was. Maybe it was because there was such a a leadership shift and a shuffling of the deck chairs, uh, new people coming in, all that sort of thing, that they were going through that norming, storming, forming phase when, you know, new groups are created and there was tension as a result of that. I'm not entirely sure, but there was certainly a different feel to it. Yeah, and look, from a change management perspective, again, to clear out all the leaders of the youth group and replace them all in such a short period of time, I mean, that was a mistake as well from the upper levels of great big AOG, not just that sort of middle leader level, to be to be doing that and then bringing in a whole heap of new leaders. And, you know, there was just too much change too quickly. And then on top of that, the new leaders came in and decided they were going to do things differently. And so there was a whole heap of change. And yeah, there just wasn't a good changeover process. There wasn't a good changeover strategy. It was just top down. We're going to tell the the, the audience, we're going to tell the congregation how it is. And here it is and bang. And a lot of people got quite miffed and quite upset, I guess. Absolutely. It was handled poorly. Look, if I reflect on it through my eyes of now, I'm, I'm an executive in an organisation of you know just under 200 people. We've had a, a bit of change within our executive in the last few months, and we've really had to be very mindful of how we do that and do it in a way which we communicate really well. We make sure that people are aware of you know what these changes mean for them, all that sort of stuff. Similarly, that youth group was hundreds of people. It was probably bigger than the organisation that I, I currently work for and none of that was done. None of that communication and strategy, I think, was executed in that changeover. So you had people probably wondering and not even knowing that they're doing this but wondering what's this all mean for me? Where do I fit? So it, it's not just yourself. It's not just myself. There's hundreds of people thinking where do I fit in this new puzzle? Yeah, for sure. But see, what they would have done, brother, is they would have prayed about it. Yeah. They would have asked the Holy Spirit to guide them, and then everything would have been fine. You you know that. That's how it worked. Oh, 100%. There was uh, n- no strategy behind it, and, and I think they bore the fruit of that, no doubt. As Debbie Harry says, take, it, take your partner by the hand, speak in tongues, and understand. Just let it all go from there. As long as you've shunned a bubbered and seat buckled, it's all going to be okay, which, as we know, it wasn't. 
you know, and, and the bottom ended up falling out of that youth group, really. But that was even later on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. So, man, I went back to um, Bible college. And as I mentioned, I think in the last episode, Pastor had gone back to my Bible college president and, or not to the president, to the principal, and tried to have me kicked out of Bible college, tried to basically say that I wasn't fit for Bible college. But the Bible college principal wanted the fees more than anything else. But I didn't know that it happened. I found out about that later on. But he was standoffish from me from that point as well. So I was back at Bible college thinking everything was okay and it wasn't. I was back at Great Big AOG and thinking everything was okay and it wasn't. I had already been struggling with this Pentecostal idea of tongues as the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think I had said that I put in my ministry credential, applied for my ministry credential. I thought that was still in play. But then I started to examine this tongues initial evidence thing because my loyalty to the AOG was really waning and really disappearing. And I didn't even feel that I necessarily needed to stay. There were other denominations that I could go out and be a part of. And there were other denominations that weren't necessarily as hard-assed on some of these things. And so I started examining this tongues initial evidence doctrine and really saying, look, I don't think it really stacks up in the Bible that you must speak in tongues to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Plus, remember, I'd come from the revival center where tongues was everything. So I didn't mind being critical on tongues. I came to the realization that I don't believe this and I'm not going to stand up and support this. So I felt in all good conscience, I needed to uh, remove my ministry credential application from the state. AOG. And so I did. I rescinded that, not because I didn't want to be a part of the AOG anymore, but because I didn't believe in some of these doctrinal things. So that was probably a big step away from the AOG. I would argue it wasn't a just a step away from the AOG. It was a step away, like fundamentally for you, your where you projected you being if if you had a one, three and five year plan was an AOG minister at that time. That's why you put your credentials in. So fundamentally, you were there was something at the core of you that was changing. It wasn't just, hey, I might just pull away from the AOG. And even just that within itself was just an enormous thing. Can't, definitely can't um, discount that. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right, 100%. I, I certainly had decided that the AOG wasn't the place for me. Withdrawing that application was saying, you know, I'm not going to be a minister in this organisation and I still wanted to be a minister. So it really was me saying, I don't want to be in this organisation and it was a step. But why didn't I just turn around and leave? I don't know. Why couldn't I just go and join another church? I don't know. Because you had invested so much in that space and it's where your identity lay. Um, I, I think that was true of so many people. And, and also, I think, like you and I have spoken about before, we had aspirations of being part of, of what that great big AOG delivered. You know, it was a very exciting place. It was a very, we saw it in some sort of way, God knows how, as some quite progressive in reaching people, in, you know, providing support and whatever. So, you know, you've invested a lot. You've told yourself that this is what it means, whether some of it is true or not. Some of it is definitely questionable. I think you had to toe the line and make that a bit of truth for you. And yeah, it's hard to go back on that. And by that stage, I'd lost respect for the state executive. So even the idea of going to a suburban church just didn't seem like it was an option for me. And who wants to go from this mega church, you know, with 
camp, you know, TV cameras and video screens and everything to a school hall on the weekend or to some small little, you know, parish style church out in the, out in the burbs. You know, I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to still have that mega church experience, but also I didn't want to be part of the mega church that we we're in. And really in, in those days, we were the only one in town, at least of that size, weren't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the next ones weren't even half the size, I don't think. There was a few emerging at the time, but it was also that it was seen as the mothership. It was seen as the place that had the most influence over the denomination. It was something that was seen as something to aspire to. So, you know, it was very attractive to be part of that. And if you could be part of the leadership of that, that was even the next step up. Yeah, you're right. So I was pew warming, as I've been told to do. And I was just sort of watching and I, you know, I I wasn't able to go to the youth. I just found it so, I don't know, it was just so weird. And I just, so I wasn't going to youth group on a Saturday night anymore. As I said, I couldn't go back to the street kids ministry because that was all run by the, you know, still run by the former pastor of country town, AOG, all that stuff was going on. So I didn't know what to do. I noticed that the street team had folded because the guy that had used to run the street team was now committed almost wholly and solely to the street kids ministry. So I thought, let's start a, a street team, you know, like a traditional tract handing out, you know, song singing street team um, on a Friday night because there was a gap there. So I decided to start that up. I started advertising that, you know, the, the, the street team had started again. I brought my own flavor to it and made it about street drama and street theater, sort of YWAM-ish kind of stuff. Um, And then I started to gather a lot of these young people. I guess you'd say they were the fringes of the youth, right? It's very that sort of David Saul kind of experience that, you know, when, when David had that falling out with Saul, sorry to quote scripture, everyone, but it's a good, it's a good narrative. It's a good analogy that when David had that falling out with Saul, all the people that were mildly pissed off with King Saul started to rally around David. And so I was grabbing those people, not because I wanted to challenge the status quo. I had no desire to push back against the the leaders at Great Big AOG at all. But instead, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want the clappers. (laughs) I didn't want those people. I wanted people that were going to be more about, you know, the gospel and preaching the gospel and winning souls, which I wasn't seeing happening very much in the the youth anyway. I, I put together this street team, gave it a really cool name came up with logos and branding and, you know, came up with a mission statement and a vision statement. I was reading George Barner's stuff, you know, all about, you know, mission and vision within churches and and started to do this. And so I put this street team together and we started performing and we were even allowed to perform our dramas in church. And it was very sort of proto Hillsong, to be honest, because all of a sudden it was this sort of, you know, hip sort of dramas. We were dressing in sort of goth clothing when we were being, you know, sort of the devil's characters. And we were dressing in sort of backwards baseball caps when we were being the cool kids and, you know, all this kind of stuff that we're doing in our, um, in our dramas. And so I had quite a big group and we were going out every Friday, but I was drawing some of these kids away from the control of the normal youth group. And these, some of these kids were starting to see me as their de facto leader. And now again, coming from a change management perspective, I should have just left. I shouldn't have done this, right? I should have just, I should have just walked out. But again, I was so 
tied to the place. And, and there was so much of myself enmeshed. If you want to call it cultic, anyone who knows, you can't just leave. You, you, have, to, you have to prepare to leave. You have to have you know, this, this precipice that you step off or you get ejected either or. And none of that had happened. And so I was trying to make the best of it all. And so, yeah, running the street team and the, the pushback started coming from the leaders of the youth group. And I went and sat down with them and tried to explain to them, you don't need to worry. This is any, and they were sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And there was no dialogue. There was no acceptance of this is what he's doing. Um, and there was no chance to resolve anything because that's not the way things were done at Great Big AOG. You didn't dialogue. You didn't resolve. You didn't mediate. It was just top down. You do as you're told. I remember it exceptionally well. And this is probably one area that I definitely pushed back against you and saw you as a bit of a threat in that space. And I don't even know why. I thought that then, but definitely now I know why. And it was, you'd come back into that space. We had tried to, I think, professionalise the youth group a little bit more. There was this core bunch of kids that sat on the fringe and rightfully so, because we didn't provide a place for them to relate, a, a place for them to express themselves, to be them. And we were trying to shape them. We were trying to mould them into something that we saw acceptable um, and presentable, and they weren't being moulded. It was a very difficult space, and they got pushed further and further out onto the fringe. You coming in, providing a place for them to actually express themselves and be on the fringe, and the fringe wasn't a place that was seen as godly necessary. And necessarily, sorry. I mean, the fringe was a place where maybe they were a bit rebellious. Maybe they needed to be bought in. Maybe they needed to be shaped in more of a positive way in what we saw as, um, as something that would make them more godly. You came in and gave them a platform to be the opposite of that. You were a threat. Yeah, I came in and said, it's okay to be who you are. Remember there were dancers like like kids that were studying dance and, and art and, you know, there were some extremes and there was all kinds of really, you're right, they, they didn't want to be moulded. And I came along and said, you don't have to be moulded like that. But in fairness, I was saying, but be moulded like this, right? So I was giving them an alternative, even if it wasn't necessarily who they were. I don't want to pretend that I was totally, you know, accepting of them. But I'd also got myself a job. I can remember a blockbuster video at that yes. stage, right? So I was working at Blockbuster Video and I was starting to watch a lot more movies and listen to a lot more music. And so it was very easy for me to, to reach those kids. But what happened one day, there'd been a lot of pushback and I'd, there'd even been conversations that I shouldn't be running this group. And I said, look, I'm not taking away from your Saturdays at all. This is just a Friday night thing. And, you know, we were doing rehearsals on Saturday afternoon before youth. We were doing rehearsals on Sunday between church. There was no stepping across into what they were doing, at least technically. So there'd been some pushback and the kids could feel it. And so one day we were sitting there at our rehearsal, which was held at the church and it was in between meetings. And I was telling the kids, hey, this is what the youth pastor has said. He has said this and said that. And really, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's what I'm, I'm trying to say and we need to be more careful. And then all of a sudden, the door flies open. The youth pastor storms in and goes, actually, that's not what happened at all. And then just started to berate me 
and the group about our behavior. And, and I just literally, I can remember be, I just bowed my head and just sank because I couldn't believe what was happening. It was the, the confrontation had just exploded, not only in front of the kids, but it was happening right there inside the church. And I, I didn't like, even now, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And I just waited and he had his say and he just he just berated me and scolded me in front of the kids and and then then he stormed out. And I said to the kids, I think that's the end of today's rehearsal. I think we should all, you know. And and of course, there we go. You know, that was for me another nail in the coffin at my time and at uh, Great Big AOG. Very soon after I shut down the street team, because I realized that without the church support, that there was no street team. Yeah, I, I definitely remember all that happening and, and remember probably a sense of let's rein him in, as in rein you in. And I think that was all part of it. I don't remember having any actions that I had to complete to rein you in, but I, I certainly remember it being the sense of what was happening, that you had to be reined in because you were really um, upsetting the status quo. Yeah, but not intentionally. You know, I really thought that I was just preaching the gospel and living the message, and I thought I was just going to slot in, be alongside what was happening in the youth. It wasn't my intention to undermine or destroy the youth, and I say that honestly. I was certainly not wanting to conform because of everything that I'd experienced at Country Town and everything that I'd learned at Country Town, but I wasn't trying to destroy, not at all. No, no, but you know, you can see how you would be perceived as a threat, no doubt about that one. Yeah, for sure. The next thing that happened was because of my time in the Revival Centre, the word cult had been thrown around a lot. I had started even at, in my time at Country Town OG, I started reading books on cults and I started reading books on high control groups and, you know, new religious movements and all this, trying to understand my time in the Revival Centre. And in some ways I was starting to deprogram myself from my Revival Centre time. And it's interesting that all that was happening concurrently with this whole Country Town AOG, come back to Great Big AOG, that was all happening at the same time. So I started reading First of all, I started reading the Christian books on spiritual abuse. So there was one book called Churches That Abuse. There was another one called The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. There was Healing Spiritual Abuse. There was Twisted Scriptures. And these books were all written from an evangelical perspective about how people and how churches and how leaders can take the Bible and use it to manipulate and hurt people. I was reading that very much with a Revival Center lens. But occasionally reading these books, I would read things and go, oh, hold on, that's what happens at Great Big AOG. Or hold on, that's what's happening here at Country Town AOG. And so I was seeing this kind of stuff at the same time. And there was one book in particular, Healing Spiritual Abuse, I think it was written by a guy named Ken Blue, and he really argues against authoritarianism inside the church. And so I was back at Great Big AOG when I found this book. I found it at Kurong or Word or wherever. One of the things that really stood out to me, and I can't remember the exact verse, right? People can look it up, but there's the verse where Jesus says in the Bible, he says, call no man father, neither be called teacher or rabbi. 
I remember reading that in the past and sort of saying, okay, so we're not allowed to call people teacher. We're not allowed to call them father. And we'd argue against the Catholics. You know, you can't call, you know, people father. And how can they do that? You know, it says right there, call no man father. But one of the things that Ken Blue said in this book is he said, spiritual title is a big separator of the uh, clergy and the laity. And he made the point that whilst, yes, we can say, call no man father, neither be called teacher, the spirit of it is you really shouldn't be called reverend, you really shouldn't be called pastor. But the biggest problem was this separation of laity and leadership, right? And so I read that and started to go, wow, and it really stuck with me and I couldn't move past it. So what I did was I made an appointment to go and see the senior pastor of Great Big AOG to go and talk with him about what I had read. Now, remembering, I didn't know that the senior pastor of Country Town AOG had done all that he'd done. And um, a lot of this stuff that had happened with the youth pastor, I thought was more about the youth pastor and me than about anything else. He listens to me when I talk to him about this. This is the senior pastor. I made an appointment. I went in and sat there. And this reminded me a lot of C's story at Great Big CCC, right? This is where I'm going with this. But I went and sat with him and I, I shared with him what I'd been reading and told him, you know, I think this spiritual title thing is a real issue. And I think this separation of, you know, this gulf between laity and clergy is a real issue. And I don't think it's really what Jesus taught us to do. And he sat there and he said, yeah, mm, mm, yeah, really interesting. As a matter of fact, in England, they don't call them in the AOG, they don't call them pastor so-and-so, they call them mister because they don't want to take this spiritual title and just agreed with me and you know, it was nice to me and smooth, you know, just, it was, it was fantastic. And I walked out of that meeting thinking it was fantastic. When the youth pastor berated me that day, he actually stopped and said to me in the middle of that berating, said to me, and another thing is senior pastor has said, you are to call everybody pastor. You are not to be telling people that they don't call people pastor. And that was actually when my head sank. And when my whole body sank, I remember now, because it was in that moment that I realized that whilst he was saying to me, yeah, 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 he then went around behind my back to his little lapdog youth pastor and said, sick him, Rex, yeah. go get him. And so that's why youth pastor was listening. That's why youth pastor was following me around. That's why youth pastor felt he could berate me and do what he all that he did, because he'd been given right. He'd been given go for it. And I can remember pastor, senior pastor saying to me, you have to stay with the chain of command. And he started using really militaristic language, which I had been reading in my books is a sign of a cult. That mm. when people start using that militaristic and pulling rank and all that, you know, militaristic language and pulling rank. And that really struck me be in that moment as well, in that meeting with him. But I still believed that he had heard me and I still believed that I was a part of this and this was, but then what happened was not only did senior pastor make a decision to let's rein him in, but it had filtered down into you guys as well. And so hearing C's great big CCC story of being pulled in and being scolded really hit me. I mean, you remember I shed a tear when I yeah. heard that story because that's exactly what happened to me. And I was devastated. I was really destroyed because I just felt, you hypocrite, senior pastor, 
you know, as much as you're a hero and people in the movement call you the father of the faith and all this kind of stuff, you said one thing to me and then set, sent your lapdog after me without even letting me know he was coming. Yeah, it was it was pretty full on. And, and that was definitely what I was referring to before. I mean, obviously, I wasn't privy to those conversations that you had had with the senior pastor at the time or any of the other things that were happening that definitely the vibe was to rein you in, as I said. So uh, this was obviously all part of it. And you were definitely seen as a bit of a, a threat to what was happening. You don't want to rock the boat. I was reading like Christianity Today and I was, you know, going to prayer meetings and I was, everything that was happening, I was towing the evangelical line, but I wasn't towing the organizational line and it was not good enough for them. It's not enough to just be doing the gospel. You have to be doing the AOG gospel. You you talk about the group that you formed I think the difference was at that time is that was very outward focused. Everything else within Great Big OAG was very internally focused. There was very few things that were looking at, looking outwards and going, how can we relate? How can we actually, if, if you're looking at from an evangelistic standpoint, how can we evangelize to people in a way that's meaningful, that relates? It had become very, very inward looking. And I think you were starting to challenge that also by restarting that outward looking. I mean, we had that welfare arm that worked with street kids. That, But that was very separate. It was very separate, exactly. Um, but that was and definitely something that sort of sat out there and, and dealt with that. And, and I think that was a way to appease some guilt. It's We've got that happening out there. Everything else was very, very internal focused. Yeah, for sure. And remember, that was the same senior pastor that had told us to take back Youth Alive from, you know, so so he was all about the brand. He was all about the AOG brand. And, you know, that was that was quite soul-destroying. But you know what? I still didn't leave. No. I still hung in there. And I remember talking to my then girlfriend whose father was a pastor at Great Big AOG, but he was kind of this sort of fringe pastor that didn't really get involved in a lot of the shit. And she had watched him get hurt many, many times. And so she was already very bitter and very upset at the system. And so she and I, you know, we were a couple. She'd seen everything that happened at Country Town AOG. She was watching all this happen as well. And she was very supportive of me, metaphorically and literally putting her arm around me and and holding me and supporting me through that time. And you can see how that really drove us together. And that really drove our relationship together because we were both these soon-to-be refugees of the AOG, and yet we hadn't quite left. And so we were both really angry. We were both really hurt, and that drew us together. And I don't know that that's really a great foundation for a relationship, but it certainly was the foundation for ours. And so, you know, we'll unpack the story of, of that relationship later on and why it all fell apart. But people say, why did you stay? Well, that's why. Because I was really, you know, remember it had only been the Revival Center some years before. And then all of a sudden it was this now. And she was there. And, you know, she was attractive and she was was pretty. She was nice. She was intelligent. She was all the, the good things. And we just came together really, really fast and really, really strongly. And I think that's 
that's another part of the story to, as I said, to unpack, but that's why that relationship strengthened so quickly and why I think we stayed together even long after we should have split up. Yeah, it was a um, certainly a very interesting time, wasn't it? It was, mate. And, um, you know, there, there's more to tell, right? Which can be our sort of, well, maybe not our next episode, but our next storytelling episode. Yeah, it, it, it's heavy. This has taken us to the edge of, I guess, where our paths started to realign. Um, we had had that period where you had gone off to, to Country Town AOG I had stayed at Great Big AOG and probably gone in, in quite different directions. And obviously that was evident when you came back that we're in very different places. But soon to be, I think we're in very, very similar places. Yeah, that's right. You woke up to it too, didn't you? Your eyes opened and and we were able to come back together. It's so nice. But it was, you know, I think it was for very different reasons too. And so because we're, we're very different people. So I, I think those reasons drove us, though, to that same place of and convergence of journeys um, and certainly the hurt that you experienced that you've just spoken about and the previous hurts I was about to experience um, when I started to push back on on that. But, you know, this was a few months on from this point of time that was spoken about today, um, but a lot happened in that time. Yeah, agreed. All right, mate, do you want to cue the music? I will cue the music. There we go. All right, so I'll see you next week. See you then. Ciao, mate. Bye.